time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War episode two hundred and forty, Papa Bear. Yeah, it is. Wow, good for us. Anybody out there? Anybody still listening? When did, anyway, where did we start this show? <laughs> How many decades ago? <laughs> you know what? Honestly, it's just a pleasant blur. I look forward to it. I laugh. I come out of the room and Heather and the kids are like, do you do any work? I'm like, he's funny. He's making me laugh. What do you want from me? Anyway, I I don't know the answer to your question. Do you do any work in there? No. We do not work. We just talk about shit. (laughs) It's either here or at a pub, but here we get to record it and share it with everybody. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. Trying to f- Where were we? I'm trying to find our yeah. uh, first episode. Oh, God. See, Going back to the archives. Yeah. Um, the back computer. Yeah. I don't know when I don't know when we started this, honestly, like how long ago it was. It was a long time. Uh, do you do you mix up the podcasts in your head? Like sometimes Leonardo is helping uh in north korea uh you know <laughs> shit like that so that it all be, starts to it should be what we do next is just uh alternative history yeah mix, yeah. mix them all up yeah never mix never worry yeah. here we go full podcast list on our oh, website wow. let's see if i can go back i, I think i'm think back let's see time. we started caesar in 2013 Alexander wow. 2014. I think this one was 2015. Wow. We started this one. Oh my God. Here we go. Episode one Let's Get Cold. <laughs> March 25th, 2016. Okay. Wow. Right after Trump came into office, then I guess. No, no, the election was in yeah. 2016, wasn't it? 2016. Oh, I'm sorry. I fucking no idea. You think I would know it's my country, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah, end of that year, he got elected. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. He got elected in 2016. Okay, so we, we're, we're pre-Trump. I think All so. Right, cool. Yeah, there you go. So what's that? Four, seven, seven years. Eh, that's not so long we've been doing this show. No. No. Uh, after we'll pass the, it on to our kids one day. After yeah, the yeah, bombing yeah. of Nagas, that would be funny. <laughs> <laughs> I bequeath you my microphone and all my notes, which is basically Wikipedia. Wikipedia and for him, yeah. it's ChatGPT. It'll be so, ChatGPT, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> Where were we? After the bombing of Nagasaki, Oppenheimer went to Washington on behalf of most of the other signers from Los Alamos and tried to convince them that building bigger bombs wasn't the solution. And Not cool. His argument, and as I said in the last episode, Oppenheimer was in, was a supporter of dropping the bombs on Japan, uh, not to end the war, et cetera, et cetera, but because he believed that if they were used once in a combat right. situation, it would put an end to war forever. 
No one would ever go yeah. to war again once they saw what these what a single bomb was capable of. Yeah. And as you said at the end of the last episode, okay, but we were all dr- already dropping hundreds and hundreds of incendiary bombs on towns and doing a lot more damage. But yeah. there's a big difference between that and one bomb that can be dropped from an innocuous plane that looks like a transport plane at any any moment. Right. You can just yes, nothing to see here. <laughs> boom. Drop a huge bomb on a city, wipe Suddenly people all out. Gone. Yeah, and then literally, there's nothing to see here. But, but what? But he's forgetting is that he is not Russian, and his country has not been invaded twice in living memory. So again, he's doing it from a very comfortable, cushy position as a scientist. Uh, and so I have to take a little bit of issue with that. But 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 I get his premise. It's going to be so horrific. Never do it again. We'll see. Yeah, I mean that was the uh, his his theory, I guess. Um, yeah, it's a good you know yeah. working theory. But um, as we said in the last episode, he didn't get a lot. Of, he didn't have any success, obviously, talking to the U.S. government. But right. Jimmy Burns, who I think was still the Secretary of the State at the time, at the time, mm-hmm. told him there was no alternative but to push full right. steam ahead. Oppenheimer disagreed and tried to convince other people. He spent a lot of time in Washington doing the rounds, trying to get support for this idea that building bigger bombs was not the solution. In fact, the way he saw it, it was just actually, it wasn't making the US safer. It was making it more dangerous because we build bigger bombs, then they'll have to build bigger bombs, and then we'll build bigger bombs, and they'll build bigger bombs. And we're not, this isn't the solution, right? This sort of. Right. You know, Big bomb race, yeah, is not the, the arms path, race is path, not the solution. Peace, yeah, exactly. He yeah. met with Atchison, he met with Stimson, right. and finally he met with Truman, as I mentioned briefly at the beginning of the first episode. Now, right, apparently, uh, according to his book on Oppenheimer, I was reading, he and Truman hated each other immediately. Um, I can see that. You know yeah. what we know about Truman is. Not 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 very smart. Um, yeah. Sort of defensive. Shouldn't been shouldn't have been in the seat in the first place. Um, no. Roosevelt didn't really want him as his running mate. Uh, he was sort <laughs> didn't of care. Forced upon him. Never shared <laughs> right. anything with him. Kept him in the dark as yeah. much as possible. Truman suddenly comes to power. Uh, kind of. Uh, he, I think he knows that he shouldn't have been in this job. He didn't really deserve it. Wasn't really qualified for it. And, you know, he starts getting attacked domestically off the bat for being a bit of a dipshit. Not People get, tended not to like him very much. He's a bit like Churchill. No one liked Churchill. Um, hey, right. by the way, did you see uh, Tariq Ali's got a new book out on Churchill? Um, no. Um, I saw a little video of him promoting it. Um, he's basically... <laughs> I loved it. He said there are there are two. He's a Pakistani, you know, journalist, historian, filmmaker. Mm-hmm. He says there are two. Um, there are two Churchills. There's the right. historical Churchill, who was loathed by nearly everyone during his <laughs> life. Um, even his own party hated him. The the British people hated him. You know, World War Two wasn't even over before they handed him his ass and kicked him out. Um, and you know he was very unpopular throughout his entire life. Was d- regarded as a bit of a, a you know toffee dipshit, smartass, 
uh, arrogant, racist, uh, misogynist, uh, shitty person. And then there is the the he said. Then there's the Churchill of Hollywood, uh, and he ah. he says that started with Margaret Margaret Thatcher during the Falklands War in the late seventies. She mm-hmm. was looking for some sort of historical precedent justification, and she is the right. one he said who started the mythologization of Churchill and turned him into this late twentieth century uh, hero. man god hero. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, which he says, you know, doesn't resemble the historical Churchill at all, but it's become this, right. you know, this mythical Churchill. I haven't read the book yet, but I'm looking forward to reading it because, you know, I don't think much of Churchill, despite yeah. the fact that he loved a stogie, which, you know, yeah. means he's... That was his one good... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, since you mentioned that, do, do you remember the second Bush when he was leave, leaving office and everybody's, he knows everybody's going to trash him. He tried to per, uh, compare himself or say, I'm the modern day Truman. I did what I had to do. So, yeah, I, I think that's interesting that someone like Bush would go. He did stuff that was unpopular, but he did what he had to do because it was the right thing to do. It was good for the country, yada, 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 yada. But the point is we're literally seeing what Truman is doing now, and it's not for the good of the country. It's good. It's the for the good of himself, the good of the Democratic Party. Uh, yeah. And again, somehow the Americans have whipped themselves up into a paranoid frenzy about the Soviets. Um, You mentioned Atchison uh, a a moment ago. I don't want to jump ahead, but did you read that one line that he wrote years later about Oppenheimer, about talking to him when Oppenheimer was trying to convince him, trying to bring him over to his side? Atchison says something like, you know, he, he says, Oppie. You know, I listened as carefully as I knew how, but I don't understand what Oppie was trying to say. How can you persuade a paranoid adversary by to oh shit, let me try that again. How can you persuade a paranoid adversary to dismantle by example? Because what Oppenheimer was saying, look, if we don't build the super, maybe they won't build the super. But I think what a lot of uh, people in military and in the government were saying is that's a chance we cannot take. And Truman eventually says, we're moving forward with this. Mm, mm. But he but he was trying, like you say, he did make the rounds. He was talking to everybody. Sometimes he was uh, persuasive and articulate. Sometimes he wasn't. But it did not work on Atchison, and it damn sure did not work on Truman. Here's what um, Atchison actually said. He's speaking Cantonese. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. <laughs> I feel dirty and not in a good way. And that's hot. Uh, anyway. Yeah, I mean, look, and I get Atchison's case here. Like, how do we stop the bad guys, in our perspective, from building these bombs? Well, I mean, right. but we, we have found ways to do that in the intervening decades. I mean, we have UN... Atomic inspectors going out, you know, open transparency, checking what people are doing, you know, if they are using uranium for nuclear energy, whether it's Iran or Iraq or whatever. We have nuclear watchdogs, nuclear inspectors who go out and, you know, supposed to have open access to all of this kind of stuff. It's not that difficult to work out. We figured figured it out. And they could have figured it out there. Yes, absolutely. If they could, if the Americans could have gotten over their own paranoia at the time, but 
But but I think it was the army, was it the army or the CIA was going, oh, no, war with the Soviets is definitely coming sometime in the mid-1950s. And so this is the stuff that's being put into Truman's ear. So maybe he feels like he has to be the first with the biggest stick. I, I don't know. But, he, but he's certainly not getting calm advice from the people around him or calming advice. So Oppenheimer met with Truman and... Um... 20-odd years later, Oppenheimer was being interviewed, and this is how he told the story. In the winter of 1945-1946, hysteria centred on our hypercryptic power and the hope of retaining Mm. it. I saw President Truman, and he told me he wanted help in getting domestic legislation through. The first thing is to define the national problem, he said, and then the international. I said perhaps Mm. it would be best first to define the international problem. I feel we have blood on our hands, Oppenheimer remembered adding, and Truman replying, never mind, it'll come It'll all come out in the wash. Right. And I remember a similar thing where Truman was somebody, it might have been Oppenheimer, it might have, I think it was one of the other scientists, I think it might have been Teller. Someone's talking to Truman, and they, and they mentioned blood on the hands, or they mentioned blood or whatever, and Truman is like, no, 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 the blood's on me. It's my responsibility. Don't you worry about that. And you get the sense from that that he's not that upset about it, and he's not losing sleep dropping two atomic bombs and asking for a more powerful bomb. I don't think it bothered him very much. No. It'll all come out in the wash, basically, yeah. Yeah. you know, like yeah. Pontius Pilate washing his hands. <laughs> um, right. Truman, mm-hmm. on the flip side, wrote to Atchison in 1946 and called Oppenheimer a crybaby scientist who came to my office and spent most of his time wringing his hands and telling me they had blood on them because of the discovery of atomic energy. Mm. So you get a sense from both of these sides of the story, Oppenheimer's yeah. side and Truman's side, that um, Truman just had no respect right. for Oppenheimer and you know, called him a crybaby scientist. Right. Like, well, yeah, you and I have been married what the long fuck? enough. What, yeah, absolutely. But you and I have been married long enough to know if you don't have trust or at least like the other person, you are not going to be able to meet in the middle. You're not going to be able to honestly evaluate the information that they're giving you. And so they, these two literally shut down when the other person was in the room. No one's respecting or listening to anybody. And hell, Truman doesn't have to listen to anybody. He doesn't. But like <clears throat> when you have like one of the smartest motherfuckers <laughs> on the planet, the guy who basically <laughs> built, built these the bombs bomb. <laughs> for you. He knows what he's doing. Right. And he's expressing his moral concerns about how they were used and might be used in the future. And his response, at least to Atchison, is to call him a crybaby scientist. Baby. Yeah. Grow up. Just the fact that he, like, that that sounds like something Trump would say. Yeah. Like, it's a, he's demeaning this guy. Yeah. Demeaning him as a human. It's not a, it's it's not a good sign of Truman's character, honestly. To refer to him as, you know, a crybaby scientist who was just wringing his hands over the fact that they killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of people with these bombs, including lots of 
children, women, the elderly, innocent civilians, and now we're just because of a crybaby scientist. Yeah, now we're going to make bigger bombs. And as we're going to see um, as in the, when it comes to the testing of the future bomb, there are other deaths as well, but I, I don't think Churchill, uh, Churchill, <laughs> uh, I don't think Tr- um, Truman was bothered very much by it. Now, when Oppenheimer can't convince the government to stop work on building bigger bombs, he decides to leave Los Alamos. Mm-hmm. And probably, I mean, their their work was kind of over at this yeah. stage. They'd done what they decided to do. He decides to go back to teaching and yeah. research. And according to Edward Teller, Oppenheimer encouraged him to leave as well. Right. Yeah. But Teller didn't want to see Los Alamos closed down. According to one of his colleagues, I think it was Betha, he said he expressed himself as terribly pessimistic about relations with Russia. He was terribly anti-communist, terribly anti-Russian. Teller yeah. said we had to continue research on nuclear weapons. It was really wrong of us all to want to leave. The war was not over, and Russia was just as dangerous an enemy as Germany had been. So yeah. we've got this guy. He again, he's he's Hungarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, Teller. Teller, yeah, and anti-communist and anti-Russian, according to Bertha. So yeah, he's motivated. Yeah, we, we have this anti-communist thing running through some of the scientists as mm-hmm. well, and you know he he already is convinced that Russia is going to be. Uh, as a, a, an enemy to the United yeah. States, even though at this point, like this is forty six, right? You know, they're still ostensibly allies, really, yeah. since the war, right? Yeah. Well, not only that, but in forty six, the vast majority of people were gone from Los Alamos. Obviously, they went back to universities. They went back to whatever their jobs were, because a lot of them were engineers, you know, hands on versus just uh, theoretical thinkers or whatever. But there's still a group of people there. It's smaller, obviously. They're not getting as the funding that they got. But Teller is still there. He is still working on it. And whether it's his hatred of communism or whether it's his almost like Leonardo, uh, his desire to finish what he started to figure out this puzzle, this conundrum, he's still working on it. And um, he's afraid, like you said, I think he's afraid it's going to get shut down. And I don't want to jump a, a jump ahead too much, but then he's going to get some help from the Soviets uh, to get to, to rekindle the enthusiasm for being able to create the super. Yeah, but that's going to take a few years. So absolutely, in 1940, early 1946, Teller is convinced that Russia's going to be uh, an enemy of the United mm-hmm. States and convinced that if anyone's going to build a super bomb, an H-bomb, the U.S. needs to get there first. But Damn right. when he told the new director of Los Alamos, the guy who took over from um, uh, Oppenheimer, mm-hmm. that, uh, well, when the new director, sorry, of Los Alamos told him that they weren't going to push ahead with the H-bomb, right. uh, Teller quit and went to work with Enrico Fermi at the University of Chicago in February 1946. He continued to sort of act as like a bit of a consultant to Los Alamos yeah. over the next few years. He'd come in and review some of the work that they were doing. They did sort of still work on theory for mm-hmm. the super bomb, but they weren't pushing ahead with the actual research on it. Right. He does eventually return in 1950, as you hinted at earlier. Mm-hmm. But... I want to introduce another character into the story. Please. So 
to build the A-bomb, the mathematical models that the scientists use to come to you know come up with the formulas for building the A-bomb right. were done using desktop mechanical calculating machines and IBM punch card sorters. Right. Basically, they did all of the maths and all of the physics using pins and poles and slide rules. Very, right. very basic yeah. stuff. But that really wasn't going to be enough to no. figure out how to make the H-bomb work. They needed more computing power, and that's where the great John von Neumann re-enters the story. I don't think we've talked much about von Neumann in the last eight years. Seven, what did we decide? Seven it's years been between this show? It's been a while. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Reintroduce Tell me everything us. you know about von Neumann. Right. Uh, Vaughn, he's obviously uh, an aristocrat, or at least what once was in the family. Uh, no, I, I don't remember Mr. That's Newman. It. Yeah, I, I don't remember Mr. Newman. Uh, not Paul Newman, different spelling. What can you tell me? Yeah. <laughs> what can you tell Von me? Von Newman, another Hungarian American like Teller, right. one Smart. of the great, not just the great mathematicians of the 20th century, but one of the you know, smartest motherfuckers who ever lived. Like right. he said to Einstein, hold my beer. <laughs> um, he was a, a child prodigy who could recite whole chapters verbatim of books when he was like six years old. Damn. Um, I can't even read. Sorry. Yeah. He, was, he had a lightning fast brain. Um, like a computer. Took up theoretical physics as a, like a sideline during <laughs> the Second World War and right. made himself an expert on shock and detonation waves. Oh, when he was six years old, he could divide two eight-digit numbers in his head and converse in ancient Greek. I can't even divide eight by two. So I'm impressed. Color me impressed. Sorry. When he was six years old, he caught his mother sort of just staring aimlessly into space and asked her, what are you calculating? <laughs> Mom, what you thinking about? No, yeah. calculating. What are you calculating? He's a robot. Yeah. So best one of his best friends anyway was Stanislav uh, Ulam, we mentioned in the earlier mm. episode. Mm -hmm. And... Um, a later friend of Ulam's, a guy called Giancarlo Rota, wrote, they would spend hours on end gossiping and giggling, swapping Jewish jokes and drifting in and out of mathematical talk. Right. When von Neumann was dying in hospital, every time Ulam visited, he came prepared with new jokes <laughs> to cheer him up. <laughs> von Neumann believed that his mathematical thought came almost like intuitively. He would go to sleep thinking right. about a problem right. and he would wake up with the answer in his head. A bit Whoa. like Edison used to claim as well. Right. right? It, it would like, just happen. Is that the subconscious you know, working on it while you're sleeping? Yeah. Or? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I want to try that. Von Neumann had a lifelong passion for ancient history. Um, a professor of Byzantine history at Princeton once said that Von Neumann knew more about Byzantine <laughs> history than he did. Jesus. You sure By this the way, isn't the reincarnation of Leo? Yeah, go ahead. Of us? Of us. I saw it. <laughs> I was on I don't know, the Prime, Amazon Prime or something the other day. I saw this new documentary series on Alexander the Great. Oh, God. And my first story was, first thought was, fuck, why were we involved in that? Like, exactly. nobody knows more about no Alexander the Great than we do. Nobody called us. 
yeah, but somebody did remember, like, what was it 2018? Yes. They were pitching us on making an Alexander the Great yeah. uh, missing body documentary series. Oh, that's right. This isn't that, but I, I watched the first like 20 minutes of this documentary and I just couldn't. I was, oh, uh, I think it's, uh, I yeah. think it's German. Right. Because uh, um, all of the like scholars ah. uh, have German names and they're all overdubbed, and the um, the actors, you know, they cut to dramatic recreations. <gasps> the actors, oh the voices are overdubbed and they don't right. sync up properly. So there's, I think it's been shot in German and translated. In they've done an English version of it, but it's cool. one of these things where it's like in Greece. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the dawn of history, <laughs> Alexander the Great, the greatest warrior and conqueror the world has ever known. Yes. It's all done like overblown yeah. fucking. Overacting. I love it. Yeah, Hollywood style. I just hate those documentaries, yes. man. They just, just talk they to just me. ship me to tears. Just, yeah. yeah, just talk, talk to me. Yeah. Yeah. Be funny. Tell me a it, dick joke. You don't have to over-dramatize this. Well, impress me with the facts. I don't need a cool voiceover. You know, just, just why was he amazing? Because he was amazing. Anyway. It's nice to see, like, they've obviously had some budget. So, you know, it's nice to see sort of recreations of right. battles and uh, buildings. That, that can and, be cool you know, if they do it right. Yeah, they yeah. sort of have shots of the the Parthenon in Athens in its full glory and all of that kind of stuff. It's nice, but just the over-bullshitty production angle of it. I, after 20 minutes, I just was about to yeah. throw up a little bit. Of my mouth. I had to turn it off. You Anywho, tried. I'm you tried. kind of pissed that we're not involved in all yes. of those things. because That's what we still need to We need to be making documentary series on these things with our, yeah. uh, you know, our patented approach to selling history. And yes. then our five fans can watch that <laughs> and celebrate. Uh, back to von Neumann. He, We're up to five. He knew, Go ahead. He knew Gibbon's decline and fall. <laughs> <coughs> he knew oh. it off, off by heart. He could he could quote. He was one of these guys what? who could pretty much cite anything he'd ever read. Like Magnus Carlsen claims he, he can remember every chess game he's ever played or he's ever read. Wow. Um, that's an advantage. He, if it's true, yeah. that's an advantage. Yeah. You see Magnus playing a game online when he's doing live commentary, and you go, "Oh yeah, I played this game in 2012 <laughs> against so and so at some tournament." Um, I don't even remember no, the same position. I had the same position back then. You know, he knows right. everything. Also, it reminds me of um, I saw this clip uh, Armadeus, mm-hmm. the 1980s yeah. film. Love that uh, with F. Murray Abraham as Salieri. I saw the scene the other day where. Um, uh, Salieri's like the court composer, and uh, in I guess in Vienna, and mm-hmm. uh, 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 Mozart's coming to visit the king, right. and so Salieri composes this little entry march for him uh, to celebrate him, and and gives it to the king, and the king starts to badly play it on the harpsichord, yes, and Mozart walks in. And the king's presents him with the sheet music and says, "You know, our court composer Salieri composes for you." And and Mozart goes, "I, I don't need it. I, I, I remember it. <laughs> I got he goes, it." But I you've only it. just heard it. He goes, "Yeah, yeah, 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 yeah. I got it." And yeah. they're like, "Oh, really? <laughs> Would you? Why don't you sit down and play it for us?" Exactly. And he goes, "Oh, okay." So sure. he starts playing it, and he goes, he plays the first couple of sections. He goes, and then it just kind of repeats yeah. itself, right? Yeah. He goes, yeah. "Well, this bit but, doesn't really work, does it?" <laughs> it kind of, it kind of sounds, 
What if we do this? What if we do this with it? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and then it starts it starts becoming more and more elaborate yes, and, and beautiful more and boy. Yes. <laughs> and they're looking and at each other. These- Going you see all these crowds of people from around the palace coming, right. just converging on the room to see what's going on. And, and Mozart's doing his goofy laugh <laughs> <laughs> while he's playing it. Yeah, like, that's it. Yeah. I and love that. F. Murray movie. Abraham's just looking pissed. Fucking kill you. You're going to fucking poison you. you fucking I just see it. I remember going, I look at keys and I just, I just see it. It just makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, so like right. us. Anyway. Von Newman uh, was one of these guys, yeah, like us, just right. <laughs> Um One of his colleagues, Herman Goldstein, said the story used to be told about him at Princeton that right. while he was indeed a demigod, he had made a detailed study of humans and could imitate them perfectly. Wow. Wow. Which reminds me, uh, Greg Sestero. Um, do you know who Greg Sestero is? No. I don't know have the you name. seen the Have you seen the room yet? Tommy Wiseau's the room. Yes. Have you? I saw it on YouTube. The whole thing you watched yeah. it. The, yeah, the greatest film ever made. <laughs> Greg Sestero is is uh, running a Kickstarter at the moment for a new film he wants to make, which is about an alien abduction. And he says he starts off his pitch video by saying. Um, the Room is the worst, simultaneously the worst film ever made and one of the most enjoyable to watch. <laughs> it's like an alien came to Earth for a week and only watched soap operas, then went back to his own planet and made a film about human relationships. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's Perfect. Spot on. Oh. Like Chrissy, Chrissy and I have always said that, that Tommy Wiseau is like an alien who's He doesn't quite trying get it. Yeah. Yeah. He's trying to do his best job at portraying what a human sounds like, and it's not quite right. He understands kind of the idea, but he hasn't kind of known The execution. It's the execution. He fails on the execution. Oh, yeah. Man, just love Tommy Wiseau so much. He brings me so much joy. I will never forget that sex scene when he's like way up high. He's like, you were like, what is he screwing her belly button? What's going on? Anyway, yeah, the positioning yeah. of the <laughs> they just got better from there. Anyway, I'm sorry, I did not mean to. <clears throat> Von Newman. Now, no, we're no, no. we're going down. Oh. Tommy was okay. uh, <laughs> Um, I pulled something. Our, uh, <laughs> Our catchphrase, Chrissy, my catchphrase. Right. The thing that we say like a hundred times a day <laughs> walking in the house is uh, this. I don't have to worry about that because Lisa is loyal to me. I did not hit her. It's not true. <laughs> it's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, oh hi, hi, Mark. Mark. Oh, uh, go on. <laughs> go on. I feel like I want to kiss her and tell her that I love her. Go on. <laughs> Go on. I love that shit. Danny, don't worry about that. Danny, don't worry about it. <laughs> That's it. That's that catchphrase. Don't worry about it. No, don't worry about it. A hundred oh, times a day we say, right. don't worry about it. Don't worry about That's it. That's why you have a calm house until yeah. Fox comes out. Uh, yeah. don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> I love that. Now I have to watch it oh, again. Violent. It's been a long oh, time. Oh, man. Yeah, we watched it just a, I don't know, a month or two ago. Again. Oh, just, 
That's such a great night. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Goldstein said he was a demigod. It was so back in the Manhattan Project, Von Neumann, just in his spare time, calculated what the shape of the high explosive lenses in Fat Man should be for the detonation to work. Right. Um, and then in 1944, this guy, Herman Goldstein, I mentioned, and a small group of engineers were working at the University of Pennsylvania's Moore School of Engineering, trying to build a new kind of calculating machine using right. government funding that used vacuum tubes instead of gears to run hmm. the calculations. And they called it ENIAC. It was an acronym that stood for Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer. Were the tubes so there wouldn't be any moving parts? Yes. Okay. Yeah. This is starting to come um, back to me now. Okay. And Barry and Stan came along uh, <laughs> at some point and went, ENIAC, really? Um, yeah. Let's just call it a computer, yes, like really, for fuck's ENIAC? sake. That'll be 50 million. Thank you. Goldstein yeah. tells the story. Sometime in the summer, I was waiting for a train to Philadelphia on the railroad platform in Aberdeen, which is in Maryland, mm -hmm. when along came von Neumann. They'd never met each other before. Right. Uh, it was therefore with considerable temerity that I approached this world-famous figure, introduced myself, and started talking. The conversation soon turned to my work. When it became clear to von Neumann that I was concerned with the development of an electronic computer capable of 333 multiplications per second, Whoa. the whole atmosphere of our conversation changed from one of relaxed good humour to one more like the oral examination for the <coughs> doctor's degree in mathematics. Soon thereafter, the two of us went to Philadelphia so that Von Neumann could see the ENIAC. Oh, so cool. he uh, and Los Alamos have been trying to figure out how they could do all the calculations they needed to build the H-bomb. Right. And, uh, well, you know, really it was to to build the, the first bomb. This is 1944. They're still working on that. But, mm -hmm. you know, they... they, they there are the higher order problems that they need to solve. Von right. Neumann learns about the ENIAC. He gets involved in the ENIAC project mm -hmm. and basically solved a lot of their problems. He worked out wow. that you could use the fairly simplistic vacuum tube situation that they had mm -hmm. into a logical system for manipulating and processing information, data, and he basically designed the first vacuum tube computer um, That's you know, amazing. Uh, uh, template for computers. Right. It was uh, um, – he wrote a report, 101-page report, mm -hmm. that uh, has been called the most important document ever written on computing and computers. Mm. Side project uh, <laughs> where he's – got his other side project, which is building nuclear bombs. He gets brought into another side project and goes, oh, yeah, computers, yeah, I yeah, can fix it. I can, I can design. I can what is it? I, can I don't know. Those. But I can, I can yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I know yeah. when they first started working on it, it was to calculate artillery firing tables, you know, because when you fire a, uh, a shell, you've got the topography, you've got wind, you've got other things that can affect it. And so they, they need to be able to work this out. But it ends up working on the feasibility of the thermonuclear weapon that, that we've been talking about. So, yeah, if it wasn't for him, it would not have been improved enough to do that. So, yeah, Von Neumann, class act, and he should be a hero. I bet most people haven't even heard of him before. 
Oh, I think anyone who's done anything in computing has heard of von Neumann. Well, and the von uh, Neumann configuration. And I'm yeah, yeah, you're, I mean, you're average. The, the dummies that listen to this show, probably not, but <laughs> all five of them. All right. five of them, yeah. <laughs> now, and for those dummies, they probably heard me say Aniac and they think I said Brainiac. Right, that's what uh, I yeah. Yeah. Brainiac, uh, Silver Age uh, villain in right. uh Superman. Superman's opponent, yes. Yeah, I think it was Brainiac that shrunk uh, the city of Candor. Candor, yes. From Krypton down and put it in a bottle. Not unlike Leonardo's in- ships in a bottle. Go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> or in the 70s in comic books, they would sell you uh, the idea of these little families of uh, shrimps. Right. That could live in a bottle. <laughs> what were they called? Oh shit! Oh god, that's not the uh, ones that got bigger in the water, right? That's just well, no, it was something like that. You can have this whole family, right, of of like shrimpy things uh, in bottles. Oh man, you're, what you're, was that? What you're pushing the edge of my memory. Uh, I'm stuck oh, on chia head now, but uh, chia oh. pet. Comics, ads, shrimps, family. Yes, yes. Oh, my God, because there was always the ads in the back of the comics. Super sea monkeys. Sea monkeys. There That's we go. They, oh, man, they got, they I've got just found show it. Now. Uh, Fastest growing sea monkeys of all time. Super sea monkeys. Just add water. Create live instant pets. See? The most amazing sight you've ever seen. Imagine, just so. add water. An amazing new super sea monkeys. Hatch alive right before your eyes. And that's just the start of a multitude of miracles that you will see when you own the most adorable live pets to ever bring smiles, laughter, and joy into the American home. Three-eyed freaks of nature. From the very start, new super sea monkeys thrill you with wonders that leave you breathless. Born with but one eye in the center of their heads. In a few days, they will grow two more eyes making them three-eyed freaks of nature. When they grow, they shed their middle eye and become normal two-eyed sea creatures. And because new super sea monkeys grow so incredibly fast, you actually see them getting bigger and bigger day after fun-filled day. Just 21 days after they are born, they are at least (laughs) one-third of an inch long. Yet they can live a whole year or more. So eager to please, they obey your commands like a school of tiny dolphins. With boundless energy, super sea monkeys romp and play night and day. So full of fun, you'll never tire watching them swim, race, and take turns riding each other's backs like cowboys on their ponies. (laughs) We even show you how to make them appear to obey your commands. At a snap of your fingers, they follow a candle beam as if hypnotized loop the loop like circus daredevils and even dance to a lively tune because super sea monkeys eat so little keep their water so clean and need just a minimum of care even an eight-year-old child can grow them if you like the company of pets you'll love charming super sea monkeys incredible money-back guarantee since every word you have just read about new super sea monkeys is absolutely true. We ship them to you with the most incredible unconditional money-back guarantee in history. You must be completely satisfied or you can keep everything free, including the super sea monkeys. And upon your request, we will immediately refund your money in full right down to the last penny. Free, over $2 worth of supplies. Brand new, fully illustrated sea monkey book. A generous supply of super growth food. Twin level precision feeding instruments. Twin level precision. 
What is that? Twin I've levels. Got twins. Two what levels. I don't know. <laughs> Two levels beside each other. Is that parallel levels? And then they've got like all the drawings are of like these bizarre looking yes. alien humanoid creatures that. with big smiles. The the mother one has like got a little blonde bob and is wearing a ribbon tied in her <laughs> well, hair. Well, of course. They're holding hands. They're playing, you know, fr- jump the froggy games. Sure. And then it has a drawing down the bottom of what they actually look like, which is basically some sort of little sea animal. And here's right. proof they're real. Life drawings made from actual photos. No, Unicorn Hodge, Department think. 41-P, 208 Fifth Avenue, New York, New York. Please send such and such and super sea monkeys and my free extra supplies. Only $1.25 plus postage. Now, wow. 1978, yes. that adds from as a kid. Yes. Uh, I was absolutely fascinated with these things and pissed that uh, <laughs> I, they wouldn't send them to Australia. Oh, um, I'm sorry. Yeah. And I had to miss out, out on yeah. all the great things yeah. that American kids got to have. They were apparently brine shrimp. According to Wikipedia, brine shrimp um, you know, goes back to the 10th century AD in Iran. They were called an aquatic dog by an Iranian geographer. Wow. Um, yeah, they're these little fucking yeah. sea I, animals. In full disclosure, um, Stan and Barry did an entire mirror full of cocaine before they wrote that ad. I, I think it shows. I never signed up for those. I did do the Kiss Army and the plastic green Army men. Do you get a big bag? Uh, but I missed out what? on the sea monkey. Yeah, I, I just it didn't appeal to me. Despite the clever ruse, it, it just did what? not appeal. Yeah. Now that I'm an adult. Uh, Fuck it, I'm do it. Go and get some how, much, how much does it cost now? I'm, I'm sure it's not a dollar twenty-five or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I don't know, but I'm going to make this my fucking mission now is to get <laughs> sea monkeys. Like, I'm the king. Why should I monkeys. not have sea monkeys? You should have everything I, you want. I think I deserve sea monkeys. You've um, earned those sea monkeys. Sea monkeys is a marketing term for brine shrimp sold as novelty aquarium pets developed in the United States in 1957 by Harold von Braunhut. They are sold as eggs intended to be added to water and almost always come bundled in a kit of three pouches and instructions. Sometimes a small tank and additional pouches are included. The product was heavily marketed in the 1960s and 70s, especially in comic books, and remains a presence in popular culture. Wow. Ant farms have been popularized in 1956 by Milton Levine. Harold von Braunhut invented a brine shrimp-based product the next year in 1957. Got to keep up with the uh, ant farms. Oh, man. Wow. So Von Neumann was purchase, not involved. Go ahead. Go ahead. Many purchasers were disappointed by the dissimilarity and by the short lifespan of the animals. Von no Braunhut is quoted as stating, I think I bought something like 3.2 million pages of comic book advertising a year. It worked beautifully. <laughs> Oh, and he is – oh, no, he died, 2003. Yeah. He I'm also invented the X-ray specs. <gasps> I oh, love those. That was the other fucking thing that I wanted. I did get kid. that. Uh, a little surprised when it it didn't work. Uh, but I had a good time up until the moment I put them on. Yeah, I, I think I got some in like a uh, a show bag. Right. Uh, do you know what a show bag is? Does that translate? No. Um, 
So carnivals, what you call it, like a traveling carnival. Yeah, yeah. We circus or whatever. Show. It's just a oh. show here. Well, not a circus. It's They have cheap and nasty rides. They have carnies. Yeah, it's under Chicago. Yeah. Like, I'm they trying to think of the word we use here, but I can't. Go ahead. So that's but it was a thing here, particularly when I was a kid. I think they still exist at some point, but they've dwindled carnival? a lot. But yeah. yeah, like a traveling carnival that yeah. have rides that have like the clowns uh, and guns. <laughs> You'd shoot the yep. ducks with the little BB guns, sort yep. of things. And she'd guess your weight anyway, by grabbing you would, your penis, right? Yeah. No, go ahead. Go they, ahead. Had, they had a bag. There was always a bag you'd get that just had. They'd cost like way too much money, and it'd be full of just like the cheapest, cheapest, <laughs> plastic shitty shit. Plastic yeah. shit that would break ten minutes after you start right. playing with but it. But it didn't but matter as, at the time. No, as kids, that's all you wanted. And um yeah. I think I got some X-ray specs in those ones, and of course they were just, oh, okay, this is just yeah. bullshit. Yeah. Ah, oh, you woke up that you became a man that day when you realized Brown Hood also yeah. raced motorcycles under the name the Green Hornet. Oh. Okay. Wow. Superhero. Nice. Fuck me. I'm still getting, I don't care. I'm getting some sea monkeys, man. You you get, you sea monkey away, my friend. But we should probably get back mm-hmm. to Von Neumann uh, after oh, you place your order. This is, this after is you place your order. <laughs> this product offered kids in Ocean Zoo and Instant Pets. Sea monkeys. Remember that? Some YouTube called Our 80s Life. Oh my yeah. God. Talking about sim, I was looking, I was hoping there would be like a, a '70s style ad for them, but uh, no. Anyway, all right, back to the fucking Cold War. I <laughs> it's not fun. as much fun, but so Eniac. I don't know how I went from oh Brainiac. Yeah, I went from Eniac Brainiac to Brainiac to, to, to yes. Seamunk. As only you can. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's I'm why gonna, I'm going to leave. That's that. why ChatGPT has never taken our job because <laughs> no it's one can come too up. Logical. Yeah. No. Yeah. You live in left field, my friend. That's all I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my you, ADD brain uh, <laughs> can never be replicated by a computer like ENIAC. Um, by the end of its operation in 1956, ENIAC contained 18,000 vacuum t- tubes, wow. 7,200 crystal diodes, 1,500 relays, 70,000 resistors, 10,000 capacitors, and approximately 5 million hand-soldered joints. Oh it weighed God. more than 30 short tons, mm. which is about 27 tons, that's what a short ton is, was roughly 8 feet by 3 feet by 100 feet in size. Oh, my occupied God. Occupied 1,800 square feet and consumed 150 kilowatts of electricity. This power requirement led to the rumor that whenever the computer was switched on, lights in Philadelphia dimmed. <laughs> Turn that damn machine off. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I yeah, watched a short it. video on this, and I don't know if it was when they were doing the computations for the H-bomb for something after that, but the guy was saying he was the president of the whatever society. He was saying to that at one point they had a uh, they had a series of computations that they were pretty sure it would take humans two years to do, and it would take – Brainiac here, a little less time to do that, but still they expected, you know, at least a good year. They fed all the information in and it took two hours. And that's when they knew the world was going to be changed forever. Something something like that, some incredible shortcut. So again, yeah, they're going to need something like this to be able to um, 
calculate things for the hydrogen bomb and things like that. And, and it's going to be used in other things as well, obviously. Yeah. And one of the ways that they used it to figure out the design of the hydrogen bomb was using it to use the Monte Carlo method ah. to figure out the optimal design of the bomb. Right. So uh, von Neumann wrote when he did his draft paper on how to use ENIAC to do computing, he wrote, mm -hmm. the logical control of the device, that is the proper sequencing of its operations, can be most efficiently carried out by a central control organ. If the device is to be all-purpose, then a distinction must be made between the specific instructions given for a particular problem and the general control organs, wow. which see to it that these instructions, no matter what they are, are carried out. Mm -hmm. So it basically, you know, designed the configuration for a modern computer where you, like back then, um, whenever they wanted to apply, get a computing device to solve a different problem, Right. You had to rewire the whole thing, be yes. like an old-fashioned telephone switchboard. You had to right. switch the plugs and move everything Change around. Change the hardware. Or, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You had to reconfigure the hardware every time you wanted to. And von Neumann was like, no, no, no. Yeah. You have a central processing control system mm -hmm. that then tells everything else what to do. Yeah. He, he kind of figured out the design of modern computers that we still essentially use today. So That's amazing. ChatGPT would not exist without the right. von Neumann configuration for computers. Um, so anyway, um, they used ENIAC, as we said. Um, it took about six weeks between December 1945 and January 1946 to do mm -hmm. the first version of the thermonuclear calculations. Wow. Los Alamos prepared half a million punched cards of data. Yes, Jesus. And now that's like the eight-track tape. Don't need it anymore. Yeah. Oh, my God. Somebody's job was to keep them in order. <laughs> 500,000 punch cards. The punch card staff can now be hired to just take a, a cloth and dust Brainiac. Uh, so they're still employed. It's just not as Brainiac. glamorous. Yeah, I'm going to call yeah, it Brainiac. And, and yeah. the Candor City. Just dust the <laughs> city of Candor glass bottles. So I... I can right. remember having what seemed like 500,000 floppy disks. Yes. You used to have like long plastic containers in your office that was yeah. just full of <laughs> floppy yes. disks. And, and then you had the, to label them all. the open yeah. folded book with all the sleeves for your CDs and then DVDs and all that. Yeah. I still have as collecting dust in my closet because, yeah. And, and then we had flash drives. Don't need those anymore. Everything's downloadable. Yeah. But because of this gentleman and others, we have the world that we do today. Thank you, I think. So uh, the, the final design of Teller's Bomb, the, the classical super as it became known, right. the classical version of the super bomb, its configuration has never been made public. I mean, it's essentially still the design of thermonuclear bombs today in essence. Yes. Um, it's it's never been made public, but Carson Mark, who took over direction of the theoretical division of Los Alamos after the war, after mm -hmm. Oppenheimer left, mm -hmm. um, he outlined it in an interview. He said the classical super was the idea that deuterium could be set burning if you got it hot enough and that perhaps right. a fission bomb might provide the sort of temperature level that you would need. 
So we have a long pipe full of liquid deuterium and we mm -hmm. have a fission bomb, which we set off at one end of it with the idea that it will heat that end sufficiently that a burning wave will get started and proceed along the pipe. Wow. The burning wave being a deuterium reaction. Now, there is the classical super. There are some answers that have to be filled in. Among them, among them, if you heat one end of a deuterium pipe like that, will a burning wave, in fact, run along it that will detonate like a stick of high explosives? That's a central question. Mm -hmm. Of course, you'd have to ask, how hot do I have to make it before that will happen? But even if I make it very hot, you would have to ask, will that happen? Uh, right. Explain to people at home, well, no one knows more about chemistry and physics than you, right? Explain to people what deuterium is. I only know the chemistry when two people look at each other from across the room, their eyes lock. Like Some people call right it now. magic. <laughs> <laughs> Some people call it magic, but I call it chemistry. No, I just remember from the, from the deuterium, from the research, They at one point they were trying liquid deuterium and then they decided to go with solid deuterium, but I don't know what that is. Please tell me. Deuterium is basically a fancy name for what's called heavy hydrogen. Ah. Uh, H, uh, sorry, 2H, hydrogen 2 or 2H, gotcha. also known as D. There are two stable known isotopes of hydrogen. One mm. is protium, H, uh, hydrogen 1, 1H. Right. This is 2H, um, heavy hydrogen. So basically it's a good stable way of um, right. storing hydrogen so it doesn't turn into other things. Cool. Um so that's that's basically the design of it. A fission bomb that you know ignites a hydrogen fusion reaction. Mm -hmm. Now, here's another interesting thing. Around 1946, 1947, most people in the West, right, including Truman and Churchill, believed that the US was sitting on a stockpile of nuclear weapons. And Right. That it was this stockpile of nuclear weapons that was preventing the Soviet Union from attacking them <laughs> or other countries. Right. They they would love to come over the border, but it's our stockpile of nuclear weapons is the only thing keeping them from wiping us all out. Yeah. They they everyone believed the US had a stockpile of these atomic bombs, and that's what everyone was frightened of. Right. Truth was. Uh, the how many did the U.S. actually have? What year? Forty-seven. I remember the number fifty-six, but that's probably later. I honestly don't know how many did we have. You were close. You're about fifty-six too many. <laughs> so we made two. We used two. We closed the show, and we didn't have any more. We had the no. stuff. We had the know-how. Yeah, it's some stuff. But we didn't bring it all together. Is it no. because it cost us $2 billion in the first place to make those two? It's just I'm asking. A, well, no, nobody just thought about it. Like Truman, The impetus is over. Yeah. The President of the United States thought he had a stockpile of nuclear weapons. Right. And He had none. <laughs> but he didn't know that. In October 1946, Truman's press secretary, Eben Ayres, Heather's uh, great-great-grandfather, sure. right. told the president that radio commentator Drew Pearson, we've talked about before, mm -hmm. big deal in the day, yes, had claimed the U.S. had moved atomic bombs to Europe 
The president said what Pearson had said was a lie. He said there were no bombs, either with or without detonators, in Europe. That's true. In fact, he said, none had gone out of the United States except those used in the bikini tests and those right. dropped on Japan. Right. He said he did not believe that there were over a half dozen in the United States, although he added that would be enough to win a war. So oh, Truman, right. in October 1946, believed that he had at least half a dozen nuclear bombs. Clueless. Okay. When he created the Atomic Energy Commission, the AEC, transferring control of atomic energy from military into civilian hands, mm -hmm. that took effect on January 1st, 1947. Right. The newly appointed AEC commissioners immediately flew out to Los Alamos to have a look at how many bombs they actually yeah. had. See, well, yeah. what, what, what are we in charge of here? What do we Where's got? The White what House? do we got? Where's the Show me what you got. Show me what you got. Hoo-ha! <laughs> Uh, one of the AEC commissioners, Robert Bacher, told an interviewer in 1953, I was very deeply shocked. I actually went into the vaults and selected at random cartons and various containers to be opened. These I then inspected myself. Judging by the consternation which appeared on some of the faces around there, right. I concluded that this must have been about the first detailed physical inventory that had been made. Oh. With weapons, the situation was very bad. We did not have anything like as many weapons as I thought we had. Yeah. David Lilenthal, who was the first commissioner of the AEC, yes. says, says this later on. Probably one of the saddest days of my life was to walk down in that chicken wire enclosure. <laughs> they weren't even protected. What bombs there were, I was shocked when I found out. Actually, we had one bomb that was probably operable when right. I first went to Los Alamos. One that had a good chance of being operable. <laughs> that is the second worst episode when it comes to a vault next to going into Jimmy Hoffa's uh, vault. I think you'll find equally nothing there. Jimmy Hoffa's vault? Yeah. Do you remember? Um, Jimmy Hoffa's vault. Um, who's the guy, Rivera, he's on Fox now. He did a famous thing where he Geraldo. went into, yes, there we go. He went into, uh, Jimmy Hoffa's vault and he had the camera crew with him and there was, uh, they were thinking there was going to be a whole bunch of shit there and there was nothing there. Uh, his career suffered a little bit, um, uh, from that. And then uh, I think later on he got slapped around by the wrestler, but you should look that video up because that was highly entertaining. Anyway, so again, vault, nothing there. Vault here, certainly not what the White House or anybody else is thinking was there. So, <laughs> so what's keeping the Russians they dropped, away? They, they yeah. dropped two nuclear bombs in Japan. Right. They're, Check. They're, they're, they're like starting this Cold War. They're, they're, they're thinking that Russia's going to be the next big enemy. Yes. They're terrified that the Russians are coming, the communists are coming. Um, the only thing that's keeping them at bay right now is our stockpile of nuclear weapons. <laughs> and they had none. Not like, a stock or does... a pile. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I've, you know, I, I've dropped the ball and taken my eye off the ball sure. in, in my uh, life from time yeah, to time. Absolutely. Who hasn't? But you would think that uh, somebody this is a big fuck up. There, somebody would have checked. Somebody with a clipboard. Uh, a pen, yeah. a very seriously looking hat would be there going, we have currently have 26, sir, and we're about to build another. You think they would know, especially if yeah. they didn't have any. They rate it is what they did. 
fucking raid it. Uh, that's ridiculous. That That's CIA-level fuck-up right there. Now, here's the other thing in this story that uh, makes me scratch my head. So this was <laughs> January 1947. The commissioners went to Los Alamos and realized they had no bombs. Right. When did they report this to Truman? If they were smart, they didn't. No, when when did when did, when did they? April. Oh yeah, you got to come so, up with the story. <laughs> See what happened was three four months took them four months to figure out. Yeah. yeah. Okay, they had to give Barry and Stan. How are we going to pitch this to the president <laughs> that we actually have no nuclear bombs? So they went to see Truman on April 3rd, 1947. Right. Lilenthal wrote this in his journal later oh, on God. that night. We walked into the president's office at a few moments after 5 p.m. I told him we came to report what we had found after three months and that the quickest way, you know what this is, this is uh, basically the UN inspectors looking for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq yes. after the invasion yes. of Iraq. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I I told him we came to report what we had found after three months and that the quickest way would be to ask him to read a brief document. <laughs> Everyone at the time, says Lilenthal, the president included, assumed that America had a supply of atomic bombs. Yeah. In fact, Winston Churchill was declaiming that it was our atomic stockpile that restrained the Soviet Union from yes. moving in on an otherwise defenceless Europe. What we of the new AEC had just discovered was that this defence did not exist. There was no stockpile. There was not a single operable atomic bomb in the vault at Los Alamos, nor could there be one for many months to come. Oh, my God. This, and the second part, like, they said the vault was a chicken wire enclosure with no security. You don't if need- there had been. <laughs> <laughs> like... As far as everyone else is concerned, there's a yeah. ton, a shit ton of nuclear weapons sitting down there. Right, and no, no chickens. security. Right. No. <laughs> Maybe the chickens were in control. Maybe they ate all the nuclear bombs. That's what happened. There's no security. No one's like, yeah. you know, uh, we better have somebody guarding these things yeah. in case, I don't know, one of these spies that we're so scared of steals <laughs> one and gives it to Stalin. Like, oh n- nothing God. going on. Nothing how do you not on. know? How does someone know? Uh, excuse me, sir. This room is empty, but I was okay. You're in charge. But how does the left hand not know what the right hand's doing? That is that is massively irresponsible. This news was top secret. Lilenthal adds the biggest yeah. secret of that time. So secret that I did not commit it to paper. Uh, so he yeah. says literally he whispered it in Truman's <laughs> ear. Truman's Zero. like. Yeah. So how many bombs do we have? He goes, come, come, come in, come in closer, come, come closer, closer. Zero. <laughs> if it makes you now, feel any better, fifty minus fifty. Okay, okay. I'm gonna go now. <laughs> this is my favorite part of this story, as uh-huh. good as the story already is. At the time, they were redesigning the Great Seal of the United States. Oh, and of right. course, as you know, being a proud patriot the great seal of the united states features an eagle in Damn its right. claws it an holds eagle. what right arrows i don't i don't i don't know not nuclear weapons because that would be tanky isn't there some kind of arrows it, or something in one claw it holds arrows in the other claw it holds an olive branch oh good for us no what <laughs> what should it hold 
And depending on which way it looks, if it's looking at the one with an olive branch, then it's okay to go out in public. If it's looking at the claw with the arrows, then don't, oh, no, nobody leave their homes. Yeah, it should have an empty chicken um, cage. Go ahead. Go ahead. They were redesigning it, and Truman had tried to get them to put lightning bolts in its claws instead of arrows to depict nuclear energy. And the people who were designing it was like, yeah, that's kind of tacky. tacky. You run the country, I will design the emblem, you the fuck off. No, that's that's tacky. Uh, I don't know why they brought the French in, but go ahead. Maybe the French designers knew more than he did. More than they did. You have no nuclear bombs, Mr. President. I was at Los Alamos and there's a fucking chicken wire and nothing else. So on your idea. Lilenthal says, he turned to me, a grim grey look on his face, the lines from his nose to his mouth visibly deepened. I bet. What did we propose to do about it? He realised the difficulties. We had lots of capsules, nuclear cores, I guarantee you, Jacob Weschler said. Mm-hmm. But we didn't have weapons. We had lots of pieces. The idea was if there was a threat, you would start putting them together. The fusing systems weren't there. The initiators right. needed to be charged. The detonators had to be stored in desiccated boxes. And you put them in when you needed them and then put them on again. And yeah. it went on and on this way. We didn't have any weapons. We had piles of pieces. That's what <clears throat> Lilenthal was going in and saying. Oh we God. don't have any weapons. Right. We've got bits and pieces that yeah. we could make into weapons given enough time and warning. Yeah. Yes. That that reminds me, there's one point, and I don't want to jump the gun, but there's one point when Oppenheimer's arguing with another scientist about do we build the H-bomb or not, and the other person had more military experience than Oppenheimer did, and he said, you don't design or build weapons when war comes. You either have them when, you know, before the war or you, you don't have them all. And, and you can argue the point or whatever. But that was his that was his argument for let's build the H-bomb now, not let's maybe build it in the future if war comes. So that was one of the arguments is is that we have to be ready to go in case Russia does something in Europe or, or Korea or whatever. And so, again, it, it, it was there was a lot of theoretical stuff going on, but everybody was pulling out every excuse they had on both sides, whether this should or should not be constructed and again it's going to cost a, a, a ton of money yeah well that's where i think we'll finish we've gone over time but okay. uh some good stories in there so truman thinks he's sitting on nuclear weapons he thought he had half a dozen other people thought they had many more than that they actually had none right if I could, in the middle of all this, right before he's about to make his decision, the Rosenbergs are arrested for spying, and that just ups the ante, it ups the, ups the tension, and of course Truman finds out that there are no bombs. This is just the world that he's living in. You always have to get in the last fucking world, don't you? I, no, I don't. Curtain has descended across the continent.